Okay, let's open up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 2. I think the year is 4 B.C. Jesus is 40 days old. And this morning we accompany Joseph and Mary as they leave sleepy little Bethlehem and come into the bustling capital city of Jerusalem. Now, we've already been in Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. We were there when the elderly couple Zechariah and Elizabeth came there so that Zechariah could fulfill his annual week of priestly service. And what a special week that turned out to be for Zechariah. But now we're back in Jerusalem with a much younger couple, Joseph and Mary. And they have come into the city with an infant in Mary's arms. Now, before they even get to the city, they see the temple sitting on the Temple Mount. It's massive. It's gleaming in gold. Uh, Thanks to King Herod's renovations, it's one of the wonders of the world at that time. Joseph and Mary find themselves likely among many other people coming into the city gates, a lot of them with animals at their side. Uh, Just as a reminder, the city of Jerusalem had a population at this time of at least 100,000 people living within a walled area less than two miles. So once inside those city gates, Joseph and Mary are in a very different world than their tiny little hometown of Nazareth. Uh, this, is, this is not what they're used to, at least on a daily basis, though they've likely been to Jerusalem before. A lot of these people in the city are streaming to and from the temple complex. Every day, several thousand animals are being sacrificed in the outer courts of the temple all of this is happening under the, under the watch of Roman soldiers, especially those stationed in the Antonia Fortress, this huge military barracks right beside the temple with a tower looking over the temple and into the courts to see everything that's happening. Joseph and Mary going to the temple would likely have passed some of the pools. There are lots of pools in Jerusalem, where people were washing, trying to get some of the, the stink of this animal-filled city off of them. They would have passed homes, official buildings, uh, probably a marketplace where some of the meat from the sacrifices at the temple were being sold. And when they get to the temple complex itself, there's a, something of a market there of merchants selling the grain and the, the lambs, the crops, the animals, the birds that were used in the sacrifices to God. If you didn't bring your own animal, you could purchase one there already temple approved for sacrifice. So why are Joseph and Mary here? And why have they brought the baby Jesus here. 
Look at verses 22 through 24. Verses 22 through 24. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, We've already seen in our past messages from Luke that Joseph and Mary are a model for us of godly parenting. Because from the beginning, they are committed to obeying the law of their God. We see their carefulness to follow the wise instruction of God. They want to raise Jesus right. And in particular... We find here that Joseph and Mary have brought the 40-day-old Jesus to Jerusalem because they are obeying two commands. They have come here to present their firstborn son to the Lord, and they have come because of the sacrifice of purification. And Luke cares enough about this that he doesn't just mention these things in passing, but he actually quotes the Old Testament commands on which these actions are based. And so as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, I simply want to make three observations from these three verses. And here they are. Number one, let us just note that we have in this passage the real temple coming to the shadow temple. The one to whom the temple always pointed, the one for whom the temple existed, the one who was being preached every day symbolically in the sacrifices and the priesthood of the temple as a little baby, he has now arrived. And I just think we need to stop and note that what we have here is the real temple visiting the symbol. This becomes important years later. For example, in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus is going to say something rather astonishing. Almost criminal in the minds of the Pharisees. Speaking of himself, Jesus would say, something greater than the temple is here. What? The the temple's where God dwells. The, The temple is where people go to have their sins forgiven. The temple is where priests make intercession. The temple is at the very center of all Israel's blessings. The temple is the center of Israel's relationship with God. And suddenly, this man from Nazareth is on the scene declaring... I am greater than the temple. And he's going to go even further than that. Because Jesus is going to follow that up by saying something even more audacious, even more shocking. He is going to declare in the presence of that crowd that he has the authority to forgive sins. Now everyone knows you're supposed to go to the temple for forgiveness. 
Everyone knows it's through the sacrifices, it's through the priesthood, it's through the high priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year. That's where forgiveness is found. And here's Jesus saying, no, I have the ability to forgive sins. And then Jesus is going to visit the temple, not just once, but several times as an adult, where he's going to see afresh how it is being abused and misused, even destroyed by the people of Israel. Not that they're physically destroying the temple, but they're turning the holy place of God into a marketplace serving the greed of ungodly men. Church, understand, by the days of Jesus, the temple was a corrupt institution. Corrupt through and through. Priests were buying their offices. And so Jesus is going to turn over tables here. He's going to run the money changers out because of what he sees. The temple has ceased to be a true temple. And then immediately after doing that, Jesus will go out into the city and heal the sick and heal lepers. The very people who were not welcome in the temple. The very people who could not go and make sacrifices there. People who were forbidden to be there. Jesus goes to them. He calls them to come to himself and forgives them. He heals them, but even dares to forgive them of their sins. And then, of course, on more than one occasion, Jesus will tell his disciples... Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they look at that massive building. This massive building that Herod has been renovating for 50 years. And Jesus says, In three days, he's going to build it up if they tear it down. And then we're told that Jesus was not talking about the building. The temple he was referring to was himself. And John tells us that after the resurrection, the apostles remembered how Jesus had said that and it clicked for them. Jesus is the true temple. Everything that people looked to the temple for, it was always pointing to Jesus. He's where we look. Where do you want to go to meet God? Go to Christ. Where do you go to find forgiveness for sin? You go to Christ. You want to bring praises to God? You want to bring requests to God? Go to Christ. All true fellowship with God must come through Christ. He and He alone is the mediator between God and man. He is the true temple. The very one to whom this whole complex is pointing But as a baby in Mary's arms, people don't even bat an eye. They, they don't notice him. It's not like the old paintings from the Renaissance as if there's like a holy glow on you know, the baby Jesus' face as Mary carries him into the temple. No, it's, it's not like that. Nobody, nobody sees anything unusual about this baby. They're, they're completely oblivious to who this child is. Well, except there are two people, two dear elderly saints to whom the Holy Spirit has revealed the truth about this baby. and They know who he is, but we'll talk about them next time.
The true temple visiting the shadow. Second truth we have in these verses. These verses teach us about the need for salvation. The need for salvation. Justin, are you sure? Because what I see in these verses are some old laws. Where's the need for salvation here? Well, let me show it to you because it has everything to do with these commands that Joseph and Mary are obeying. And so to see it for yourself, turn to Leviticus 12. Leviticus 12. Because Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary came to the temple for their purification. They're obeying the command of God in Leviticus 12. So look here with me, verse 1, Leviticus 12, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. Okay, Joseph, Mary, they're Israelites. If a woman conceives and bears a male child. Well, that's, that's Mary. Now she's a little different. She conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, but she conceived and she has born a male child. Then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. Okay, so this was actually fairly normal stuff for an Israelite woman. Once a month during the time of her menstruation, an Israelite woman was considered unclean. And now here, after the birth of a son, she's also to be considered unclean. Next verse. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. We've already seen them obey that. We saw the Lord Jesus at eight days old. We saw not only did they circumcise him, but that was the day when Joseph and Mary gave the baby the name revealed to them by the angel Gabriel. He shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's happened. Keep going. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. Okay, so for a total of 40 days or maybe 41, depending on how you interpret these numbers. Okay, This woman who gave birth to a child was considered to be in purification. She's recovering from uncleanness. This meant simply that during these 40 days, she was not to touch something that had been declared holy or sacred, and that this woman who had given birth to a male child should not come to the tabernacle, or now in Mary's day, should not yet come to the temple. Now, verse 5 isn't relevant to Mary because she had a son, not a daughter. But just note this in passing. If she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. You never know where a sermon's going to go, do you? All right, so I will touch on that one in just a minute. Look at verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are completed... Whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, now the temple in Joseph and Mary's day, a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. 
Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And finally, this is the verse that Luke actually quotes in Luke 2. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Well, what are we to make of all of that? Why would God declare all this business related to childbirth an unclean business? Why would God require his people to come make sacrifices for atonement after childbirth in order to be made clean? What, what is all of this about? Well, friends, all of this is meant to teach spiritual truth. And the primary spiritual truth being taught here is that human beings are not born in cleanliness and purity. Just as childbirth for the Israelites was an outwardly unclean experience, and even in our most sterilized delivery rooms in our hospitals today, childbirth is still a messy, unclean experience. So God is giving us here a spiritual reality. We are born unclean. Spiritually. In Psalm 51.5, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he was not saying that his mother committed some kind of immoral act. Not at all. He is saying that he, like all of us, was born into a sinful race. If there's poison in the root, there's poison in the fruit. The messiness and the bloodiness and the grossness related to fertility and childbirth, as well as all of the elements of this command, are all meant to point us to the reality of original sin. The reality that we are born sinful, that we are born needing a Savior. And so let me just ask you, do, do you understand this about the human race? Do you understand this about yourself? Ephesians 2 says that all people are sons of disobedience and by nature children of wrath. By nature. You're born this way. By nature, we're born already condemned by God because of our inherited sinfulness. Before we ever sin, we are sinners. We are not sinful because we sin. We sin because we are sinful. There is depravity in the human heart from our very beginnings. Proverbs twenty two fifteen. folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Genesis eight twenty one. the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And that word youth doesn't mean like we use it like teenage. That word in the Hebrew means all the way from infancy. If you do not know this, if you do not understand this, then you don't understand why God, what God was teaching in these laws, and you won't have a right understanding of the human race, and you won't understand yourself. 
We are born unclean and in need of salvation. And even though Jesus is the great exception, even though Jesus is the only person ever born by the power of the Holy Spirit, free from moral spot or blemish, yet he was born under the law of Moses. And these commands, teaching these gospel truths, and Joseph and Mary faithfully kept this law by coming to make these sacrifices of purification in Jerusalem. Now, I said I'd make a statement about verse 5. Why did God require a different time of uncleanness and purification after the birth of little girls compared to the birth of little boys? And there's a lot of speculation about what that might be about. But here's the one thing I am sure of. This fits the pattern of Old Testament laws always making clear distinctions between males and females. In the Old Testament laws, Israel is always to distinguish between males and females. And there are certain regulations that apply to males, and there are certain regulations that apply to females. The worldview of the Bible is not one in which gender is a social construct. The worldview of the Bible is that God made man in his own image, male and female he made them. Gender is not a sliding scale in the Bible. It is not a spectrum on which you place yourself. It is not arbitrary. It is not fluid. The worldview of the Bible is the worldview that has become a scandalous buzzword in our day. It's binary when it comes to gender. Now, yes, due to the fall, some unusual things can happen. Those are rare exceptions. Scientifically, 99.9% of people either have two X chromosomes and are female or an XY chromosome and are male. And how a person feels and how a person experiences life, that's not unimportant. But those subjective feelings must never be used to overthrow objective truth. And we're walking down a path of frustration if we're always trying to change objective truth to match our subjective feelings. It must be the other way around. So the Bible goes out of its way in these laws to distinguish male and female. And the more we blur the lines between the two genders, the more we try and mix and match their roles together, the more we lose of the glory of God in humanity. True biblical manhood and true biblical womanhood are wonderful, precious, beautiful realities. Don't let our culture ever convince you otherwise. Men, we need to embrace biblical manhood, learn about it, know what it is, know what it isn't. Teach your sons about it. Encourage one another in it. Ladies, embrace biblical womanhood. Learn about it. Know what it is. Know what it isn't. Teach your daughters about it. Encourage it in one another. This is the path of blessing. 
Okay, back to Luke 2. Back to Luke 2. So we see in the law of purification that God is teaching us about the sinfulness of the human race, that we're all born unclean and in need of a Savior. But we also see in this passage a message about the way of salvation. Yes, the need for salvation, but also the way of salvation. Because there's that other reason that Joseph and Mary have come to busy Jerusalem. They've come to present the baby Jesus to God They've come to redeem him. That's right. They've they've come to redeem the redeemer. Isn't that interesting? Uh, It comes straight from Exodus 13. comes straight from the time of the Passover. Remember, God demonstrated his great judgment on the people of Egypt by striking down their firstborn children. And it was only through the blood applied to the the homes of the Israelite families, the blood of a sacrificial lamb applied to their homes, that their firstborn children were spared. The Egyptians were Israelites. I'm sorry. The Egyptians were sinners. The Israelites were sinners. It's not that the Israelites were somehow intrinsically better than the Egyptians. No, they were all sinful. The only reason the Israelites were spared was the sheer mercy of God and him keeping his promise to their father Abraham. And Moses commanded the people that from that day forward, Israelite families were always to bring their firstborn to God. They were to acknowledge that this child and any other children that would later come are a gift from his hand. And then they were to redeem They're firstborn. That's what Joseph and Mary are doing here. So listen to these verses from Exodus 13, okay? When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and that's where Israel is, right? As he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. God said it shall be as a mark on your hands or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So what is this all about? Why are Joseph and Mary bringing baby Jesus to the temple? Answer, to redeem him. Not because of any sin in him. But because this was yet another gospel preaching command. Israel was being taught through these commands to remember how they too were guilty before God. As guilty as the Egyptians. And it was only through the blood of a substitute. A lamb sacrificed for them that they were saved. And as it was true in Egypt, so for each successive generation, nothing constrained the judgment of God from being poured out on Israel, but his sheer patience with them and substitutionary sacrifices 
animals killed on their behalf. As Joseph and Mary go to the priest and the priest takes an animal and kills that animal and then gives the baby Jesus back to them, they have redeemed him. It is the gospel being preached yet again. And it's all pointing to Jesus himself. This this baby in Mary's arms amidst the hustle and bustle of the outer court of the temple is the one who has come to be the true lamb. He would be the one who would be the price paid to redeem all who believe on him. This baby on this busy day is the fulfillment prophesied by millions of sacrifices performed over century after century on that very same temple mount. And he would be taken outside the city and he would be laid on the altar of the cross and his blood would be poured out and his life would be given up that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. Dear friends, we need a lamb, and Jesus is that lamb. We need a substitute guilt bearer, one to bear the wrath of God in our place. And Jesus, whose very name means salvation, he is all that we need. In him and him alone, we find salvation. And so there it is. We have Joseph and Mary obeying these Old Testament commands. And you could easily read these three verses and think, I have no idea what those have to do with us. Or just get, keep, keep reading, keep reading. They have everything to do with us. All of these commands have gospel purposes. They teach us our need of salvation. They teach us the way of salvation. And I'll simply bring us to the table this way. Where do you stand with Christ this morning? Should the day of your death be today, are you ready to meet God in the throne room of heaven? Unbeliever, do not stay in your unbelief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and follow Him. And your sins can be washed as white as snow. And you can have the promise of an eternity with God in heaven. Christians in this room, look with fresh wonder on the child who became a man, who became the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is the very God-man, the one who would be your sacrificial lamb. Love him. Worship him. Declare your faith in him through the bread and the cup. Let us live lives of honor to him. Amen?